We will begin. Well, we're on the tail end of this class now, addressing a variety of issues that are kind of front and center in our culture, talking points. Um, and I apologize for not having my, uh, my you know, little PowerPoint thing up here today. I, I know that's just been super enlightening and probably made the class for everyone, but um, didn't get to that this week. So your handout will have to suffice. Um, but we have we have been covering now over the past um, couple months these different talking points, uh, many of which were about sexual morality as our society continues to sort of renegotiate the parameters of what constitutes morality as well as the source and meaning of morality altogether. And then there are those perennial issues of race and class. You know, anytime there's like a, a stratified, socioeconomically stratified society, those are always going to be um, part of the uh, social dynamics. And so we covered a couple weeks there. And then this week and next we'll talk about religion and politics. Um, so actually we'll talk about faith and politics this week and then uh, uh, religious liberty, religious freedom, you know, what... what um, what, what liberties the government grants to its citizens in regard to religion. We'll cover that next week. Um, so this morning we turn our attention just to this much-discussed topic of faith and politics. G.K. Chesterton said, Seemingly from the dawn of man all nations have had governments and all nations have been ashamed of them. Um, there's always this kind of tense relationship that citizens have uh, with their, their government. But America seemed like something special perhaps. Uh, something to be proud of, a democracy, a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, something that's very much us, so we should be proud of it. Um, so we're, we're this democracy, and you know, the, um, I think it was Aristotle, so, you know, the many are, are more incorruptible than the few, so even if democracy means, you know, even if the crowds, the multitudes are more ignorant, they're at least more incorruptible. Um, and, and so there, there should be, uh, you know, the hope was that in this experiment there would be a, a, a hearty investment of the citizenship into uh, the government. And yet this democratic, democratic government has been profoundly conflicted. And even more so at this current moment where there is, uh, as Abraham Kuyper put it, this mortal combat going on between secularism and Christianity, and often that is reflected in our political discourse. So how are Christians to think about government? And specifically, how should our faith affect our politics or our views of government? How should uh, it guide the way we think about government and politics? Well, this morning we'll reflect just briefly on our political situation and some of the tensions we feel, uh, and then locate politics within the true story of the whole world, and then uh, finally just conclude with some of the suggestions, uh, not my own, but drawing from a couple books. One is um, How the Nations Rage by Jonathan Lehman, a newer book out on uh, faith and politics. And then another book by Robert Benny. Uh, both these are listed at the bottom of your, your handout there, called Good and Bad Ways to Think About Religion and Politics. Um, very, very similar sorts of approaches to thinking about it, and they've listed out um, some suggestions there on the back of your handout, <clears throat> 15 of them, that we'll try to get to this morning. So 
let's begin with our political situation. Uh, first of all, thinking about what government is, it's an organization of the people, simply put. Government is organization of the people, and then politics is all the work that's done uh, in government. Uh, functionally, politics is seeking to influence people through the mechanism of government. So government and politics are often used synonymously. They certainly overlap. But if you wanted to distinguish them, government is organization of the people. Politics is the work of government. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. It doesn't need to equate to tyranny or social engineering and manipulation. Uh, But what's crucial is that government would remain self-conscious of its goal and remain subservient to that goal. Uh, a means to an end, that is. And the goal of government should be to bring about the virtuous life of its people. Again, that's kind of Aristotle's idea of government, that it it should bring about uh, the virtuous life of its people, uh, which would imply that every government has a vision of the good life. Every shared community of people has a vision of, of the good life. What is virtue and how it should be lived out by its people. And in America, there's increasingly deep division over what that vision of the good life is, uh, what constitutes virtue and how, how is it to be lived out. How do we determine good virtues? And, and therefore, how would government um, pursue those virtues and help its people pursue those virtues? The supreme American political value is... Anybody? Freedom. Freedom. Um, So Oz Guinness observed, freedom is unquestionably what Americans love supremely, and love of freedom is what makes Americans the people they are. From its very beginning, the United States was blessed with a sturdy birthright of freedom. It was born in freedom, it has expanded in freedom, and it has resolved its great conflicts in a new birth of freedom. Uh, Referring an allusion there to the Gettysburg Address, this new birth of freedom. Uh, but even this, this broadly shared vision or value of freedom is, is difficult because we find it at odds with other values, such as that of justice. You know, what about when the exercise of some freedoms turns out to be great injustice uh, to others, which is the way Christians often frame the discussion about abortion. The mother's exercise of freedom turns, to, turns out to be an injustice to the baby. You know, so how do you resolve these kinds of conflicts in a uh, society that, where we don't all share the same Uh, vision of the good life or understanding of virtue. So without a shared vision then of how these virtues should be pursued, we experience increasing uh, polarization in society. Of course, there's always conflict at the level of government. That's that's not like a historical anomaly that we're living in. Um, But there is increasing polarization uh, in our society um, reflected in government and politics as a result of this idea of mortal combat between secularism and Christianity. Um, So we we did a whole week uh, near the beginning of this series on uh, a polarized society. Uh, This morning we're just kind of acknowledging that that reality is reflected in government as well. We have a polarized political uh, situation. So even last week when Miguel uh, taught about refugees and immigrants, you know, Patty pointed out uh, having a conversation with a friend. I thought her. I thought this conversation probably reflected a lot of conversations about uh, refugees and immigrants. But she recounted a conversation with a friend where the friend was expressing frustration about those who come into the country illegally but then receive free benefits. Uh, and how they even encourage or encouraging one another then to come illegally to receive free benefits, uh, and the frustration that her friend feels over those things, uh, common frustration 
Um, Maybe some of you sympathize with that. And I I think the tension there as Christians is that we know we ought to love our neighbor and we want to walk out um, that biblical theology of refugees and uh, not immigration, I guess, but refugees as as Miguel presented it. Uh, But we feel tension uh, with that as as to exactly how um, how those... doctrines or how, how that biblical worldview fleshes itself out in regards to policy. So I think what, what you were trying to do last week, Miguel, if I'm not mistaken, is present sort of the biblical theology and be sort of suggestive about that, where that might lead, but really just work on kind of that core. What is uh, biblical theology of um, refugees and, and loving neighbor in particular? But then exactly how to flesh that out, that, that core that, that's pretty clear in Scripture, how to flesh that out in terms of public policy is difficult. You know, translating the Bible into public policy is a very difficult thing to do. Uh, so it's unclear often exactly how our faith should guide our politics, which is the thing we're talking about this morning. There are some of these uh, issues that are, might be called straight-line issues. That's how Robert Benny refers to them in his book, um, good and bad ways to think about religion and politics. A straight line issue would be one of these issues where you can draw a direct line from biblical principle to political application. Uh, abortion is murder. And therefore, um, a government established by God as it is to protect its citizens from murder um, should outlaw abortion. You can draw a straight line on this issue. Uh, but healthcare policy is very different. It's what Benny calls a jagged line issue. Um, So he says a whole range of public policy issues, perhaps the vast majority of them, exhibit a tangled journey from core, you know, biblical core, uh, to policy. So there are simply too many steps in the movement from core to public policy involving too many prudential judgments to construct anything like a straight line. And so as we think about... um, political issues and try to apply our faith in them, we often find ourselves in that tension. You know, there's not a straight line to draw. And so we're trying to factor in all these prudential judgments and sort of come to the best conclusion that wisdom leads us to. Should the U.S. embassy to Israel be in Tel Aviv or Jerusalem? How many refugees and immigrants should we admit each year, if any? And programs, what programs should be in place to host them? Is universal health care the best way to show love of neighbor because it's more equitable? How should we interpret and collectively respond to scientific findings regarding climate change? Uh, what is the meaning of religious freedom, and how does it fit with civil rights when those two seem to be at odds? Uh, what policies should be in place surrounding uh, complicated end-of-life if- issues? And how should we address systemic poverty and socioeconomic disparities, especially where they run along racial lines? All of these issues and so many more have very jagged lines. There's not a clear and straight line to draw from Scripture to public policy on these things. Uh, And so we're left as Christians trying to be guided by the heartbeat of Scripture, uh, informed by its worldview, and then bring our um, convictions from Scripture to bear in a uh, humble, uh, thoughtful, reflective way on these issues. So Christians as we've already said in this class, should adopt um, particular gestures but not overarching postures toward these issues, Um, not adopting wholesale uh, any particular platform or ideology. Uh, That is to say there's no Christian position on each of these issues, Uh, but rather we're we're seeking to apply Christian doctrine to these issues uh, in prudential or or, uh, applying wisdom sorts of ways.
But then how do we think about how um, our faith shapes our critical engagement? You know, if we're trying to do this critical engagement, you know, sort of assess, you know, affirm what we can, reject uh, what doesn't seem to align with Scripture, how does our faith help us do that? So let's talk for a minute just about politics and government from a Christian worldview, uh, locating politics within the true story of the whole world. So this second point uh, is a line that I've borrowed from a couple others. But you're, we're trying to say in this whole class that there's, the, the Bible presents us a story, the true story of the whole world, as someone put it. And uh, we're trying to locate each of these topics on the map, you know, not saying everything we could say, not bring up necessarily all the debatable points about each of these topics, but just trying to put them on the map of that Christian worldview. Um, so let's do that with politics, um, beginning with creation. Uh, I, I know you can't possibly imagine that um, politics was present anywhere at the beginning of things and God's good creation. It must have been a part of the fall, Right. Um, well, this may be on the verge of speculative, but I think that human government would have existed uh, from the beginning if there had never been a fall. God created man and woman in his image, giving them responsibility to exercise dominion over creation. Um, so Genesis 1, and 28 are foundational verses that we've reviewed several times now in this class, I think every week, because uh, they help us understand uh, God's intention, the creator's intention for his, creation, his creation's role in the world, for us, for our, our role in the world. So God created man in his own, own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the seas and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So humanity was intended by God to exercise dominion, to rule over uh, his creation and everything in it. And humanity was also intended, according to these verses, kind of the fundamental commission is to multiply, uh, to, to grow into millions of people, to fill the earth. Uh, and, of course, any time that, you know, people are gathered, there arises a need for organization, which is, again, the essence of government, uh, organization of people. So Bruce Ashford suggests before the fall, government would have consisted of some sort of collective ordering of human life. Um, so all the policies uh, that would attend that kind of ordering apart from the fall, you know, would have existed um, even if the fall had never happened. He suggests setting schedules, making policies, for example, whether or not to drive on the left or right side of the road. Even unfallen humans would have had to decide this. So this kind of collective ordering of people is the idea there that is, you know, maybe present in seed form in uh, that initial commission for humanity. So we can place government under God's commission to humanity to fill the earth and subdue it, to have dominion over it. But then Cain kills Abel, and we have not only rebellion against God, but you know now the storyline presents us with this conflict uh, between one human and another, hatred, jealousy, uh, these sins uh, between people that that culminate in murder externally. Um, This is introduced into humanity and becomes just kind of a fundamental dynamic in the way that people relate to one another. And, uh, and so, you know, corruption then continues to progress until God decides to wipe out everything and start all over again. So he spares Noah and his family and the animals, but uh, wipes everything else out in the flood. 
And then in Genesis 9, as soon as God recreates, so to speak, you know, brings, brings forth this new family through salvation, through judgment, similar dynamic to what Tom mentioned this morning, uh, he also recommissions. So he recreates, so to speak, and then recommissions. That first commission to Adam and Eve was to be fruitful and multiply and exercise dominion. And now there's a second commission in Genesis 9, verse 1, where it says, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Uh, And then God kind of, there's this expanded sort of vision of everything being under their dominion. So God says everything will remain under their, um, their care and their rule. But you shall not eat flesh with its life that is its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it from, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Um, so here you have, again, this sort of recreation. He blesses them like Adam and Eve. He commissions them to be fruitful and multiply actually twice in verse 1 and verse 7. And, uh, and so smack there in the middle of those two commissions is one of the earliest principles for ordering humanity uh, or for government. And that is this principle of justice, specifically retributive justice. Uh, the idea that Tom mentioned in the sermon this morning, lex talionis, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Uh, that, that is what you see here in Genesis 9. And this is foundational for understanding God's purposes for government in a fallen world uh, to bring about justice. Again, it says here in Genesis 9, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So this principle of retributive justice, you know, responding to a crime in kind, uh, is, is fundamental then to so much of what we see in the Old Testament, including what's going on in Obadiah, as Tom preached this morning. Um, so this principle underlies many of the commands that God gives to Israel in this kind of modified theocracy, and so one purpose of government is, uh, in a fallen world is to exercise justice uh, and to render judgments for the sake of justice. Uh, but then we also notice that this exercise of dominion, <clears throat> specifically rendering justice in Genesis 9, fits inside of uh, these bookend commands of being fruitful, to, to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth. So you can see then that the command given in verse 1 and verse 7 uh, is, is the positive command, and it's in the, the command to render justice uh, in the ordering of human life is sort of in the context, it's a negative command, but set in the context of this, these, uh, these positive commissions. So the rationale for executing justice is for the stability of humanity, allowing people uh, to be fruitful and to multiply. And so then you could conclude a second purpose of government, uh, organization of people, um, is to build platforms for peace, order, and flourishing. So governments to render judgment for the sake of justice 
And then secondly, um, to build platforms of peace, order, and flourishing. But of course, uh, we are talking about a fallen world still. So these are realities necessary in a fallen world, but they'll be exercised only imperfectly and ineffectively uh, in a fallen world because government is not only the organization of people, but it is an organization of people. Um, And so people being a part of it, it will remain uh, broken and imperfect doing these things, not as God would have them carried out all the time and often in contrast to how God would have them carried out. So as we continue then in the biblical storyline, we come to Jesus, and we see um, how Jesus teaches a redeemed people to interact with government in the world. How do we live as redeemed people in regards to human governments? You know, we have an eternal hope, but we are bound to these feudal and temporal institutions. So how do these eternal um, aspects and the immediate, you know, temporal aspects of our life Uh, fit together. And there's a famous passage that Matthew records in which Jesus says, uh, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God that which is God's. Um, Kind of helping or establishing a principle for how the eternal and the immediate fit together. But Matthew also records another interesting encounter where Jesus talks about taxes again. Who knew that Jesus talked about taxes twice? Um, On this other occasion, I'm sure you'll remember this story, Uh, Matthew says that when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax, which is a tax for the maintenance of the temple, uh, the collectors of this tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? Peter said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take tolls or taxes? From their sons or from others? And when Peter said, from others, Jesus said to him, the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to uh, them for me and for yourself. So on the one hand, there's a lot going on in this passage. We we won't get into all of it. But on the one hand, uh, Jesus is saying, the sons are free. We belong to an eternal and heavenly citizenship, and uh, we're not bound to earthly governments. Uh, Don't pay your taxes, is what Jesus says. You're not bound to do that. Don't tear up your 1040s just yet, though. Because then he says, on the other hand, not to give offense, uh, go pay your taxes. So there's obviously some kind of tension going on here, right? So he's telling Peter, respect and honor these institutions that have been affirmed by God. Very similarly to how he says, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's, but to God that which is God's, which of course includes all things, including uh, oneself. And so we might broaden this principle here to say uh, that believers live with all of our hopes, freedoms, identity attached to eternal realities, the world to come. Um, And so we should fear God and not human rulers, and yet um, we live in the reality of the present age, and so we should respect legitimate institutions uh, ordained as they are by God. And so you see this principle at least in two places for God's people given from Jesus. Peter himself would later go on to write, Fear God, honor the emperor. Uh, in First Peter 2, you remember, may remember that. Fear God, that comes first. Uh, but honor the emperor. This is what people who fear God are free to do. 
uh, is to honor the emperor. We're living between the ages, in other words, between the time that Jesus first come, came and, and will come again. We, we are always going to be in this tension where we are citizens primarily, first of all, ultimately, you know, not of uh, um, earthly kingdoms, but of a heavenly kingdom. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior. Um, and yet we're citizens of kingdoms on earth as well. And so we are um, obligated to honor God by honoring and respecting human governments. And then the final piece of the biblical storyline, uh, restoration, reminds us of this very reality. So again, Paul says, this is in the letter of the Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So our hopes are attached to the one who is able and who will uh, subject all things to himself. Uh, we've just started this, this summer Bible study going through Revelation, a prophecy that reminds us of these realities with, with vivid imagery, you know, that all the government, all the governments, all the political leaders in the world uh, will be deposed and that God will establish an eternal one world government uh, and, and Christ and God will reign uh, from their throne over all things. So as Leslie Newbegin said, Having this knowledge, we ought as Christians to be the strength of every good movement of political and social effort because we have no need either of blind optimism nor of despair. Um, So Christians have this kind of transcendent hope that is not blind optimism. It's hope in an eternal reality that we know the end of the story. Um, And so we neither despair nor have a temporally bound optimism. All right, so what does all of this mean uh, for us as Christians? You know, how do we actually walk these things out? We, we want, you know, as, as members of the Church of Christ, we want um, to have our hope fully set on that day when Christ is revealed to us. Uh, we, we believe um, that in the end he wins and will set all things right, and our, all of our hopes are attached to that, uh, which means that, among other things, our, our hopes or expectations for human governments, um, for political movements or parties, um, should all be tempered somewhat. You know, not that we're indifferent uh, to what goes on in this world, but that our hopes are not attached there. Um, so we have limited expectations of what can be accomplished by politics and government. Okay, so as far as some specific suggestions, there's 15 of them. They're on the back of your hand out there. There are three kind of stage-setting suggestions and then 12 that follow. Uh, like I said, these I'm just drawing. Um, call me lazy, if you will, but I didn't think I could really improve much on these. These are straight from uh, Jonathan Lehman in his book, How the Nations Rage. He's borrowed a bit from Robert Benny. Um, good and bad ways to think about religion and politics. So if this is something that you'd like to think more about, those are both excellent books. Um, So three starting points. First, we're to live as ambassadors, not as cultural warriors. The fundamental imagery that God's given in his word for us as Christians is that we are witnesses. Um, So that that is our goal, to be a faithful witness uh, to Christ in whatever context he has set us in. 
Um, so we have limited aims when it comes to cultural transformation. We're not warriors um, seeking to uh, bend culture to, um, to be the church, but rather we are the church living in the midst of culture, um, seeking to be salt and light in it. So we're ambassadors. And then secondly, we need to remember uh, that politics in this world will always be Sisyphean. Thank you, Jonathan, for bringing uh, Greek mythology into the picture. Sisyphus, anybody? It's the king who got uh, sentenced to roll the stone up the hill. Uh, so it's, it's just like this picture of futility, which he could have just said futility. Um, politics in this world will always be subject to futility. There's, there's always going to be this sense of, um, you know, we, we, have, we have things we'd love to see. We'd love to eliminate poverty, you know to have everybody cared for, to have all the homeless off the streets. We, but this will, this will not happen. You know, in, in one sense, there's an exercise in futility. In another sense, we're called to it. Um, so, you know, again, it's the not, not um, blind optimism or utopian you know, expectations, uh, but at the same time, not despair or indifference. And then third, we need to recognize that political success for a Christian equals faithfulness and not results. Um, so God doesn't, God doesn't uh, demand certain results from us in regards to you know, societal changes or transformation, uh, but rather demands that we be uh, faithful witnesses to his gospel in the places that he's put us. We just kind of, those are just kind of fundamental principles for us then in how we conceive of ourselves and our role in regards to politics, government, and society. So some specific suggestions that will flow from some of those ideas. Number one, join a church. Uh, Lehman says the church's most powerful political testimony is being the church. Uh, So the best thing that Christ's covenant can do in regards to, you know, politics and government on refugees and immigration is... Love the refugees at Cedar Point. You know, those that are among us, those that we know that God's put us in touch with, uh, try to love them well and be a good neighbor to them. And and that is a a political witness uh, in the midst of our society. And then beyond that, you know, the the only influence that many of us can have anyways in regards to policies regarding um, immigration and refugees would be um, voting for those who support, you know, your conclusions on that matter. Um, so that, that's not an insignificant stewardship that you have, voting, uh, but it's also uh, a limited one. And so, again, we're, we're trying to focus on what the clear commands that God has given us. Um, so join a church, and as a church, then, let's be the salt and light that God has uh, called us to be. Number two, fear God and get wisdom. Again, First Peter 2, fear God, honor the emperor. So fearing God comes first. Um, some people are overly anxious about government, uh, but as Christians, you know, we have been called uh, to fix all of our hopes in God, which means that we must not respond to changes in government and society with panic or alarmism. You know, so where you sense those kinds of things rising up in your heart, anxiety and whatnot over um, political movements, government policies, um, recall you know, evaluate the attachment of your hopes. You know, what, what are you hoping in? Where, where is your trust? Again, we, we looked at Psalm 2, uh, that, which, which Tom mentioned. There's a lot of overlap between what we're talking about this morning and Obadiah, I guess. Um, 
Psalm 2, how, how the nations will rage against God and his son, the Messiah. And yet, uh, in the end, uh, they will be shattered with a rod of iron. And so the psalm is not about the power of the nation's rage, but about the futility of the nation's rage. And, uh, and so our, our fears and hopes should not be attached to it. Fearing God means trusting God, not depending on circumstances. You might think of other psalms like chapter t- uh, Psalm 20 where it says, Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 146, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. But blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob. We want to fear God and get wisdom. And then thirdly, obey and honor the government. So you think of many examples in Scripture, like Joseph serving Pharaoh, Daniel serving Nebuchadnezzar, Nehemiah, uh, Paul showing respect for Rome and Acts. Uh, So the Bible is full of examples of God's people honoring the governments that they are under, even wicked and idolatrous governments. Um, So honor the government. And then fourth, make use of whatever political stewardship uh, you have. So that's going to be different for many of us. So we have in our church good public school teachers, um, NCDOT workers or former NCDOT workers, uh, Department of Revenue workers, uh, fundraisers for political campaigns and organizations, maybe other things. I was just trying to think of some people doing things more directly related to the government or the work of politics. So they will have a more uh, direct political stewardship and responsibility. Uh, and they ought to be faithful in the places that God has put them, trying to make those places work effectively for the purposes of justice and to bring about uh, flourishing order and peace. Uh, Christians make the best princes and citizens, as Martin Luther said. Um, But in a democracy, you know, we all have some stewardship. So at a minimum, we are to pay taxes and exercise an informed vote, be an informed citizenship, which a democracy depends on. Again, Aristotle's uh, observation, the many are more incorruptible than the few. They're like the greater quantity of water, which is less easily corrupted than a little. So it takes all of our participation uh, in an informed way in a democracy to make it work. And then fifthly, know your political culture's supreme value and look for common ground. Um, So we've already said our our political culture's supreme value is freedom. Uh, but probably the Christian's supreme value should be justice, you know, as this more clearly reflects God's intention in establishing uh, governments and human ordering to begin with. In Genesis 9, you see that again in Romans 13 and all sorts of other places in Scripture. Um, So freedom and justice are certainly both um, worthy values, but justice uh, for the Christian should probably be the supreme one. And so uh, we feel this tension. We should know our culture's supreme political values and you know, see, seek to affirm where we can and uh, reject or critique where we're um, not seeing an alignment with Scripture. Uh, which would be related to number six there, be a principled pragmatist in your public square arguments, uh, by which Lehman means uh, the for the purpose of For the purposes of biblical justice and within the bounds of biblical morality, make whatever arguments work. Uh, Make whatever arguments work. So, again, you're you're 
thinking, coming as a Christian within the bounds of Christian morality, uh, but in regards to public policies, making arguments that work well, uh, which again will mean not adopting kind of a full partisan ideology, but rather having this stance we've called uh, co-belligerence, you know, affirming and rejecting, being willing to do both those things rather than towing the party line, affirming what the Bible agrees with, rejecting what it seems not to agree with, uh, regardless of uh, partisan affiliation. And then uh, number seven, be willing to invoke God in your arguments. So it's kind of an overlapping point, but he, he, so he's surveying then what, what might a principled pragmatist look like? You know, if you're, trying, if you're trying to reason through or, you know, you're in a dialogue with someone about one of these topics, you know, what, what would principled pragmatism look like in terms of making some kind of public policy argument? Um, and he says there are several good approaches to making an argument in the public square. The first is uh, argument from conscience. So when the Affordable Care Act employers uh, or uh, enforces that employers insure their employees insurance coverage for abortion, uh, Christian employers objected to that, right? And at least part of the, the objection included an appeal to conscience. Uh, though not everyone believes abortion to be murder, uh, those who do uh, in their conscience should be exempt from uh, this requirement. Uh, so there's an appeal to conscience there in the public square. And then a second approach would be an appeal to natural law. So the founders you know, said that there are self-evident truths. Uh, that's an appeal to natural law. They said all humans are created with certain inalienable rights. That's a, an appeal to natural law. I read a book last year called What is Marriage, Man and Woman, a Defense. Uh, it's written by Sharif Gurgis, Robert P. George, Professor at... Uh, Yale, I think, and then um, Ryan Anderson, all three Roman Catholics, and uh, you know, which obviously has a, a rich history of uh, natural law theology going back to Thomas Aquinas, and uh, they're making the case for marriage being between a man and a woman based on natural law, trying to make a case, you know, even uh, appealing to those who wouldn't have any regard for the Bible. Um, and so they're appealing to um, what, what is self-evident. And then a third approach to public square arguments would be an appeal to sociology, appealing to studies about what works best for society. Uh, but all of these depend on the consent of the one with whom you're arguing. You know, d- does it resonate with them? Do they agree with it? Of course, every study uh, could be countered with a, you know, a, a study that shows a different kind of conclusion. And so it de- these kinds of arguments depend upon the consent of uh, the one you're in dialogue with. Um, and so... <clears throat> And this is kind of the essence of the point. Uh, Christians have to be willing to invoke God in uh, their arguments. You know, there, there may be times, in other words, where to, to, to make a certain stand, the Christian needs to end up saying, you know, well, thus saith the Lord. This is, this is what the Bible says. You know, this is the, the biblical worldview. And um, Christians ought to be willing, not always, uh, but where necessary to invoke God in, in your arguments. Number eight, practice convictional kindness. Uh, 
convictional kindness is just the idea that you, you work according to your convictions, but do so kindly with respect. So we've already talked about the idea of civil disagreement, not civil disobedience, but civil disagreement, uh, that in, in dialoguing over these issues, whether with another Christian or with a non-Christian, that you would practice kindness um, and, and love. That's something we should be skilled at as Christians, peaceful disagreement, you know, almost like applying peacemaking uh, peacemaker sorts of concepts to our discussions where we know there's going to be disagreement. Then number nine, do not attribute your interpretation of historical events to providence. Uh, you know, where there are natural disasters, it's not necessary for Christians to surmise what societal sins may have caused that natural disaster. Uh, we don't need to speak for God uh, on those cases where he has not spoken. Number 10, know your own party's strengths, weaknesses, and idolatrous trajectories, which is another way of saying just be self-critical. You know, if you, if you kind of know your allegiances lie with one party or the other, uh, be self-critical in regards to the weaknesses of that party. For instance, uh, the Republican Party has always emphasized individual responsibility and not looking for government handouts. This has been uh, a strength, many would say, of the Republican Party. Uh, the Democratic Party has carved out its identity as being um, defenders of the disenfranchised, uh, the downcast, the minorities. Um, so this would be a, a strength kind of aligning with some biblical values that the Democratic Party has. So, so these are good things that we can affirm in each party. Uh, but the Republican Party has its own sort of weaknesses and idolatries, assuming kind of an amoral or neutral utilitarianism in regards to uh, the economy and society that can overlook structural realities and implicit bias that exists within those structures, which often leaves behind very people the Democrats are concerned to uphold, you know, the disenfranchised and the downcast. Um, and then the Democratic Party has... Um, at this point, largely embraced a secularism that rejects God and more explicitly values self-expression and autonomy and liberty as the uh, value above all others. So, you know, these kinds of strengths and weaknesses, a Christian should be able to affirm, you know, the, the strengths and critique the weaknesses and whatever, you know, your own affiliations are um, to be uh, self-critical of them. And then, uh, number 11, be prepared on occasion to disobey the state. So there may be a time when it's, uh, you know, difficult for Christians to uh, obey at all. Um, so there can be a spirit of respect and honor and yet uh, substantial disobedience. Um, you see that actually happening in China right now. Uh, where the, uh, There's an article last week, they put it, the Great, the Great Commission will require disobedience. Uh, and there are some, some cases where that will be true. And then in some cases, not for, for the sake of witness, as in China currently, um, but for the sake of morality, which is what seems to be kind of in the, in the future, possibly here in the United States, that to uphold uh, Christian biblical morality, uh, there will be a need for disobedience. And then finally, pray for the government. This is one of the clearest commands in, for the Christian in regards to government in scriptures. First Timothy four verse or two verse one. Uh, first of all, I urge. Um, so Paul is writing to Timothy specifically about gathered worship and what the co components of gathered worship should be. He says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. 
godly and dignified in every way.